producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Republics can't go into the conquering business and remain republics. Militarism leads to military domination, military despotism. Imperialism smooths the way for the emperor. And as you know, inside every U.S. president, there's an emperor that's trying to get out. And our job is to stuff that emperor right back down into his gazoo. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. That's Michael Parenti, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Michael Parenti on imperialism. Imperialism is a term not applied by the mainstream media and traditional academics to anything the United States does. However, it is liberally applied to contemporary enemies or hoary empires of the past. Michael Parenti defines imperialism as the process whereby the rulers of one country use economic and military power to expropriate the land, labor, markets, and natural resources of another country in order to attain ever greater capital accumulation on behalf of wealthy interests at home and abroad. Washington is always looking for euphemisms to cloak its real intentions. Thus, rules-based international order is gaining currency. U.S. interventions are presented as promoting noble causes such as human rights, opposing tyranny, and bringing democracy to others, and on and on. Our guest today is Michael Parenti. He's a leading independent political analyst and scholar. Cornell West calls him a towering prophetic voice. He's taught at major colleges and universities in the U.S. and abroad. And he's the author of numerous books, including Super Patriotism and Against Empire. This classic from the AR archives was recorded in 2005 at the College of DuPage in Glen Ellen, Illinois. And now, Michael Parenti on imperialism. There's an enormous disparity between what empires actually do and how they're represented in history. This is what I've found, that empires are pretty much written about by people who live in the imperial countries. And so the, the treatment of empires is rather celebratory. Empires are often represented as creations of peace. They're even given names of peace, right? Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Roman peace was a brutal, bloody world conquest, as I'll mention in more detail in a minute. Pax Britannica, and there's even Pax Americana. Empires are often represented as bringing stability, justice, and prosperity to their subject peoples and bring order where once there had been disorder. Let me read to you from one great student of empire. He wrote a masterpiece of a multi-volume work. It's called The, the History of the 
decline and fall of the Roman Empire, uh, Edward Gibbon. And this is what Edward Gibbon says. The obedience of the Roman world was uniform, voluntary, and permanent. The vanquished nations blended into one great people. They resigned the hope, nay, even the wish, of resuming their independence. The vast Roman Empire was governed by absolute power under the guidance of virtue and wisdom. Yeah, right. That's the description he gives. I mean, not a word here about an empire built on shattered armies, sacked towns, burned crops, raped women, slaughtered herds, enslaved prisoners of war, oppressively overtaxed populations. Not a word about that. Empires are even sometimes represented as unintentional, the product of unconscious circumstance. When I was a youth in my salad days, I used to hear that the British Empire was put together in a fit of absent-mindedness. Cyril Robinson, a British historian, he says the same thing about the Roman Empire. He says it about both of them, his empire and the Romans. He says, it was perhaps almost as true of Rome as of Great Britain that she acquired her world domination in a fit of absence of mind. How do you build an empire in a fit of absence of mind? How do you do that? You just kind of get up and say, oh, let's go and let's go conquer Gaul today. Oh, did I say that? Or what are those armies doing up there? No. John Morley, English political leader and writer, talking about the British Empire, 1877. We have had imposed upon us by the unlucky prowess of our ancestors the task of ruling millions of alien dependents. We undertake it with a disinterestedness and execute it with a skill of administration to which history supplies no parallel. I mean, let's deconstruct that a minute, would you? I mean, millions of alien dependents? Who made them dependents? They didn't ask to be made dependents on the British. They were brutally conquered by the British. They were independents until the British came along. You didn't inherit them. You went out and got this whole thing. And it wasn't undertaken with a disinterestedness. And it goes on like that. The U.S. too. Here, very recently, The Economist, a conservative British publication, empires are born in funny ways and sometimes via the law of unintended consequences, by accident. We pay in the taxes. We paid that 200 billion. We pay, every community in this country pays that. I go all over this country speaking and I pick up the papers and it often looks like this. I'm in the same place every time. The same story every time. City council votes uh, cuts in the budget. State legislature uh, facing large deficit. Uh, Schools closing, libraries closing, hospital closing, lack of funding, so forth, so on. The empire feeds off the republic. Somebody's got to pay for that. They got more money than they can even count or hold accountable 
there in Iraq. Very little of it has gone to the Iraqi people. The water purification plants still haven't been put into function yet. Very few of them. The electrical, the electrical systems in many places, in neighborhoods in Baghdad where you get four hours of electricity if you're lucky, so forth. Where is all the money going, everyone's asking. Well, for some people, empire is quite profitable. Don't ever say that George Bush's policy in Iraq isn't working. It's working. It's just not working for you or for me or for the Iraqis. But it's working for certain interests. It's working in the way that empires have always worked. To say George Bush's policy isn't working is a senseless comment. So discard it because you have to say working for whom? Whose interests? Cui bono is the Latin phrase. Who benefits? Who gets the payoff on this? And just because many of our liberal commentators don't know what they're doing doesn't mean they don't know what they're doing. You get it? And when you think those who rule you, when you think those who rule the wealth and control the markets and the labor and the resources of society and set the wages and define the labor market and, and control the media culture, and all that, when you think they're stupid, then you're being stupid. You got that? Okay. If you know that, and you don't know anything else, you know more than if you know everything else, but you don't know that. So you've got to really know that. Now, empires never stand naked in their rapacity. They never stand naked in their violent injustice. They don't turn to their people who have to pay the price of empire in taxation and the blood of our brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and fathers and mothers they don't have to pay for that. They've got to tell these people something. And so they give their people a host of rationales. We're told that they're fighting for the security and the survival of our nation. We're told that they're fighting for democracy, for bringing it to others, for humanitarian rescues, to, uh, to oppose dictators, to get rid of a man like Saddam Hussein, you see, right there, let's pause on that one a minute. How many of you have heard that? That part of this was to fight to get rid of Saddam Hussein. All of you have heard that, I know. How many of you have heard that it was the United States that put Saddam Hussein in power? Oh, this is a politically literate audience. Well, let me tell you, there are millions of people out there who don't hear it, and it's not their fault, because you can't hear it. You did not hear it on ABC, NBC, CBS. So... In 1968, the Iraqis had a democratic popular revolution. They overthrew the autocracy. They kicked out the British and American oil companies. They nationalized their oil. They nationalized their economy. They were developing a viable, communitarian, different kind of society. The CIA picked out very early Saddam Hussein. His first gig was an assassination. When Saddam finally came to power as head of the Ba'athist Party, he exterminated Every constitutionalist, every democrat, every communist, every progressive, every reformist in Iraq. And when he was doing that, and he was torturing people and doing horrible things, when they say this about him, that's, they're telling the truth. What they leave out is that it was the CIA that put him in there. They leave out that little detail. They don't tell the people that. When he was doing that, 
when he was at his worst back in the 70s and early 80s, he was Washington's poster boy. They couldn't get enough of him. Saddam Hussein, he's pro-West. He's our ally. He's uh, pro-American. They gave him aid. They gave him bacteriological stuff to use against the Iranians. They sigged him on the Iranians because they didn't like Iran's nationalizing their oil and all that. It's when Saddam Hussein, Hussein started committing economic nationalism, when he got out of line on the oil prices and the oil quotas, when he made it clear he wasn't going to privatize his economy, when he started developing his country and committing economic nationalism, as opposed to what you should do in a neo-colonial empire. In a neo-colonial empire, if you are a faithful servant of that empire, you are a comprador leader. That is, you lead your people, but you respond to what Washington wants. You say, come on in, boys, it's all yours. Take it, the, the natural resources, the oil, whatever you want. Our people get out of line, we'll crack them down. You just give me the aid, give me the guns, give me all that, and I'll take care of them. And you take care of me, take care of my brother Jose, my cousin this and that, or whatever, if it's Latin America, or if it's Africa, or Middle East, wherever it might be. And there's no environmental protection laws here. There's no minimum wage to worry about. There's no child labor laws to worry about. There's no um, occupational safety laws. You don't have any of that trouble cutting in. This is capitalism working at its best. This is the way the free market is meant to work. None of those regulations, none of those kind of things. You don't have to pay your workers uh, paid vacations. You don't have to pay them pensions. You don't have to worry about medical care or any of that stuff. This is straight free market, all on your terms. You can pay them 18 cents an hour and you'll get richer and richer. It's all yours. Those are the kind of leaders who are called pro-West, staunch allies of the U.S., pro-American. And the ones who challenge that the ones who go against that, the ones who pose an alternative way of using the land, the natural resources, and the markets of the country, those are the ones who are called anti-American, anti-West. What does that mean, anti-West? Like Chavez or Gaddafi for a while, or Castro. It doesn't matter if they're communist or Christian socialists like the Sandinistas were in Nicaragua or even right-wing militarists like Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So they tell us these things, that what, this is why we're there, to save people, to introduce them to democracy, to help them teach the poor, little, itty-bitty, apparently not very bright Iraqis self-governance, teach them how to govern themselves. It's a 5,000-year civilization. We're going to go in and teach them some things. This is the civilization that brought us writing, the alphabet, a lot of the early science, very bright, resourceful people. But they haven't learned what we are going to be able to do now, teach them. Again, leaving out what? Leaving out the fact about the 1968 revolution and the country they were building on their own if they had been left and given an opportunity to build that country. You're listening to Michael Parenti on imperialism. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. 
www.ncpsa.org. One thing that's, that's often bandied about is the idea that the United States is a unique country. It has a unique history. You want to know something? That's absolutely true. It's a very unique, remarkable country, or a unique history. No other country has a history the United States has. But you know, that's true of almost every country. They all have unique, fascinating histories. China, Egypt, Ireland, France, Great Britain. I mean, so many of them. They all have all sorts of interesting histories. Italy, um, Nigeria, South Africa, all sorts of remarkable accomplishments, incredible transitions, horrible atrocities, uh, unusual ethnic mixes, and... and, uh, all sorts of kinds of conflicts. It's fascinating. The other thing we hear, though, when that's said about unique, they say, we have a unique mission. And then that's introducing the idea of the messianic nation. I talk about that in my book, Super Patriotism. I think I have a chapter in that called The Messianic Nation. And again, you want to know something? A lot of countries thought they were the messianic nation. You could read the, uh, the early French nationalists like Michelet who talked about France being the center of the, not Western Europe, not all of Europe, but the world. That an idea did not become an idea of Western culture until it reached Paris or something. That the French had a mission to bring the Republic to other people. You get it from the, uh, the early Slavic nationalists, the Russian nationalists like Dostoevsky, talking about Holy Mother Russia. Holy Mother Russia had um, a mission which was to bring all the Slavic peoples, unite them and bring them up, elevate them to a new spiritual level away from the degeneracy and materialism that was infecting the West. In India, you had the Indian National Congress in the 19th century talking about the Aryan mission of India, not just for the subcontinent, but for the whole world, that India with its spiritual richness would lead mankind through its troubled and tattered, uh, gloomy past out into a new bright vision and future. And this is what India will do if we could unite and all get together and develop our national consciousness and then be an example to not only ourselves but to the whole world and a power and a force for this sort of thing. You can go back, well, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, go back to the Old Testament, read about the chosen people, the chosen people doing God's work on earth. That's the, one of the earliest messianic nations that we have actual literate script about and all that. Italy, the, uh, the Italian uh, nationalists like Gioberti, and who talked about uh, the Italians as being the new chosen people, or even more so, more prominently, Giuseppe Mazzini. Mazzini, would, Mazzini t- talked about Italy having led the world twice before in ancient Rome and then with the Vatican through Christendom for a thousand years, and now an Italian republic will emerge and it will bring democracy and peace and all this stuff. It was a pretty benign message he had, but it still was a messianic nation. What the hell is this guy talking about? The average Italian peasant was uh, trying to keep body and soul together and was not about to lead the entire world to a new enlightenment. The German nationalists like Treitschke and Fichte, the same kind of thing, that Germany would develop its power and weld the world together and bring order and, and a little harsher, uh, and, but develop it and, and be in, in finally a benign force. 
So Americans, in thinking that we are an exceptional people, we're very unexceptional. That thought, I mean, it's a very unexceptional thought. There are many others who have had the same thought. Now, rulers do not only play upon our messianic and patriotic pride, they play even more decisively on our fear. That becomes a big thing. I remember a, a very quiet but dramatic moment of it. I think I was the only person who seemed to notice it back in 1990. George Bush Sr. wanted a war against Iraq. Saddam Hussein had not only done all these things, but then went in and took over Kuwait. Because the Kuwaitis were slant drilling under the Ramallah oil fields and siphoning off Iraqi oil. And he kept telling them to stop, stop. If he was smart, what he should have done was just gone and just taken that portion of the border. Instead, he conquers the whole country, giving the U.S. a tailor-made excuse for going in. Still, as of November of 90, the polls showed that Americans supported diplomatic and negotiated withdrawal of Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. I mean, I'm talking about 70, 80 percent preferred a negotiated settlement and in fact, the French and Russians were pursuing just such a settlement with Iraq. Get your troops out of Kuwait, avoid getting attacked, blah, blah, blah. The Americans are really in high dudgeon on this. American leaders are. The American people weren't. They didn't want to start sending troops over. Where? Kuwait? Where the hell is that? They couldn't have even found it on the map. And you want us to send our <clears throat> men and women over to get killed there. So they said, no, we would rather have a negotiated settlement and withdrawal rather than sending U.S. troops. In November of 90, a poll was taken and it said, if it's shown that Saddam Hussein has nuclear weapons, the term weapons of mass destruction had not yet quite come into vogue. The poll said nuclear weapons, which is a f one weapon of mass destruction, said if he has them, would you support U.S. military action against him. And then the poll, playing now not on your patriotic pride, not on your sense of fair play, not on your sense of wanting to eschew extreme costs in blood and money and wanting to pay more attention to problems at home, not getting around those things, in fact, defeating, defeating that last one by playing on your fear. And the polls reversed. 70% of the people said they would support. I was watching the polls very closely at that time. And after that, the Bush senior administration was hitting that line that he has a nuclear weapons, he is worse than Hitler, he can blow up all of Europe and, and, and Israel and us too and blah, blah, blah. And so it went. And so you play upon their... Fear. I'm going to read you just two things and then I'm going to stop. The first is by John Foster Dulles. John Foster Dulles was a member of a very rich and powerful New York law firm. Both he and his brother, Alan Dulles, were in it. Alan Dulles later became head of the CIA. John Foster Dulles became Secretary of State under Dwight Eisenhower. Later on, he wrote in his memoirs, and you know, these guys always sound better when they come out of power than when they're in power. 
There's something happened. Look at Jimmy Carter. There's a whole bunch of them. They, they're much improved when they come out of power. In this case, he sounds pretty terrible, but I mean, he's more honest. This is what he wrote. He gives us a moment of truth about the empire's falsehood and manipulation. Quote, in order to bring a nation to support the burdens of maintaining great military establishments, it is necessary to create an emotional state akin to war psychology. There must be the portrayal of external menace. Let me repeat that sentence. There must be the portrayal of external menace. You get that. Get the words. Words are very powerful instruments. The words they're using constantly to cloak. But if you, can, if you look at them closely, they reveal a little more than they intend. It's not there must be an external menace. He says there must be the portrayal of an external menace. We must put this image in the minds of the public. This involves, Dulles continues, the development to a high degree of the hero nation and the villain nation ideology and the arousing of the population to a sense of sacrifice. Once these exist, we have gone a long way on the path to war. Goody, goody, goody. All nations to some extent, to some ex varying, varying extents, but all nations to some extent rely on public opinion. All nations need the support or at least the acquiescence and the resignation of the population. So that could be a supporting population, a grudgingly supporting population, an intimidated population, whatever else. But they cannot function if that population begins to develop a counter-consciousness and begins to mobilize and move and go in a different direction. Don't for a moment think they don't care what we think. Oh, they don't care what we think. They just go do it. Oh, boy, do they care. Everything they do Everything they do, every trip that George Bush is making, every speech he's making now is because he cares what you think. Every answer he's given and every justification and all that, they care because they know, they know that their power rests on your shoulders, on your tax-paying shoulders. I'm going to read you one last quote. This is by a guy named Tom Watson. Tom Watson was a governor of Georgia and then a senator, U.S. senator from Georgia. He wasn't a Democrat or a Republican. He was a populist. This was back in the late 19th century when the Populist Party had, had they controlled about four or five governorships and maybe had about four or five members in the U.S. Senate and maybe a couple of dozen in the House of Representatives. They were emerging as a power, especially in the South and the West. And their fight was against Wall Street, and the big moneyed interests and the industrialists and all that sort of thing. Watson's later career took a very unfortunate turn, anti-Semitic, racist, of course, Georgia at this time and all that. But this is 1898 now. 1898 was a rather interesting time. This is when the U.S. has embarked upon this, this other great humanitarian crusade called the Spanish-American War where McKinley said we have to fight this war because we have to save the poor Cubans from the Spaniards. And what was McKinley's first act of war? Does anybody know here? It really stunned a lot of people. He took a U.S. Army, 
and a U.S. fleet, and he went thousands of miles across the Pacific, and he invaded and conquered, in what turned out to be about a six or seven year bloody war, the Philippines. Because they were rich. Because that set up the Pacific Empire of the U.S. And that had been their goal all along, to get into the plunder of this, to find the new markets and the new resources for that top one or two percent of the investing class. And the Springfield Republican, a newspaper that had supported McKinley and the war, and half the American population that had supported this, more than half, they were all going crazy. Let's go in and save those poor Cubans. Let's whip the Spaniards. The Springfield Republican wrote an editorial saying, hey, what's this war all about? We thought it was to liberate the Cubans. And where the hell are you going? All the way to the Philippines. Well, it wasn't. It was to build this empire. Well, this is what Tom Watson has to say. The Spanish War has finished us. The blare of the bugle drowned the voice of the reformer. The, when the war was still in progress, he added this. Who gets the benefit of the war? Cui bono. Who benefits? The bond seekers? The capitalists? The railroads? National bankers will profit by this war. The new bonds give them the basis for new banks and their power is prolonged. The privileged classes all profit by this war. It takes the attention of the people off economic issues and perpetuates the unjust system they have put upon us. Politicians profit by the war. It buries issues they dare not meet. What do the people get out of this war? The fighting and the taxes. What is the United States doing in this war with Spain in the first place? True, Spain is oppressing Cuba, but so is England oppressing Ireland, Egypt, and India. France is oppressing Siam and Madagascar. This is 1898. Turkey is oppressing Armenia. Should we then take up arms against the oppressors of the world? We would more likely end up by becoming oppressors ourselves. The Spaniards and Cubans were bushwhacking one another and killing from three to five men at a battle. We have gone down there and killed more people in three months than they would have killed in 13 years. If they were starving before, who feeds them now? What are we going to get out of this war as a nation? Endless trouble, complications, expense. Republics can't go into the conquering business and remain republics. Militarism leads to military domination, military despotism. Imperialism smooths the way for the emperor. And as you know, inside every US president, there's an emperor that's trying to get out. And our job is to stuff that emperor right back down into his gazoo. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Why, in your opinion, is the American public not angrier about uh, the upward uh, transfer of wealth, uh, the fact that they see that their jobs are being outsourced, that they're, uh, that they're not getting uh, their fair share, uh, that there's no national health care, uh, that public services are cut. Uh, I don't see enough anger. If I lost my job, 
and I couldn't feed my family, or if I had a medical emergency and I couldn't pay for medical care, I would be angry as hell. Why isn't the American public angrier? Well, you know, the people who are in power do control the universe of discourse. I mean, they control most of the media. It's remarkable that the few little things that get out, the critical things that get out now, do get out. I think what you often get is people can't connect the dots. They see that and they may complain about it, but they don't blame it on George Bush. George Bush is saving us from this horrible menace in Iraq, and we should be supporting him. And, and regardless what you think of the war, our boys are there now in Iraq. Um, they're there, we've got to give them our support. You know, so those are the kind of things you get. And sometimes they are. Some of them are seeing things. I mean, look, his popularity and approval rating has dropped to 38%. Um, a lot of times people don't do anything because they don't know what to do. That's why the, the existence of an organized movement that's why unions are very important, because unions do reach working people in a way that all the other organizations that we build uh, don't quite reach them and can educate them on these very issues. And that's why union members have a better voting record than non-union and all. But uh, also, you know all the other reasons. I can't go through the whole map of political manipulation now, but uh, the powers that be also conjure up other issues that distract people, that divide them. There's the problem of race, you know, racism. There are portions of this population that have never accepted the civil rights movement. There are portions of this population that have never accepted the counterculture movement, including legal abortion, women's rights. And those portions together are being led by a very tiny fraction of this population that has never accepted the New Deal and wants to get us back to 1900. So they're playing, on the, they're playing on things about abortion and uh, gay marriage. I mean, gay marriage, that was like throwing meat to them. They, they sat, they must have, I mean, when did it come? When did, that, when did that issue break? It broke in the fall of 2004. Nice timing, guys. You know, you just throw, I mean, they, they must have felt it in their knees and say, Lord, thank you, Lord, you've given us red meat. I mean, the votes they could get on that one, I hope, but what's, hap- what's going to happen in 2008? Will, uh, will it be man-boy love? Will th- that'll be thrown out to see how many you could divide there and all that. Well, that, I don't compare that with, with gay marriage, which I think is a legitimate right. So there, there are these issues which do uh, provoke false consciousness, appeals to patriotism, knee-jerk patriotism, which I wrote about in Super Patriotism. That would be the answer. I, I remember my dad, who became a disillusioned Reagan Democrat. He, he used to live and die by the Democratic Party, and then he, started, he voted for Ronald Reagan. I said, what the hell are you voting for Ronald Reagan for? And, uh, he said, oh, death penalty and uh, crime. He retired, he started watching TV, and he watched all these crime shows. Suddenly he became, he became frightened about crime all the time. I was born and raised in East Harlem, Italian Harlem it was called. It was a very tough very tough neighborhood in New York City. You probably could hear a little, just the slightest touch of New York in my accent. But um, it was a safe neighborhood, though. Nobody messed with us. I mean, and there were always old ladies sitting on the windowsill and the streets could see everybody and all that sort of thing. And then he moved up to Clawson Point in this Archie Bunker kind of place, which was really almost semi-suburbia. And he started getting afraid that there were hordes of uh, urban gangs were about to descend on because he's watching all this television. 
and, and, and even he, after about a year and a half of Reagan, he said, this guy Reagan is only for one group. He's not for the rest of us. So somehow he picked it up. I mean, he began to pick up, you know, how many times can you give tax cuts to the very rich without people beginning to say, I don't know if you're really looking out for me here. Can you recall uh, any historical or modern uh, example of a successful anti-imperialist uh, movement? Well, the Vietnam movement, it took years and lots of uh, casualties, but it did have a tremendous impact, whether it was successful by certain standards. I don't know, it didn't really stop the war. The war was really stopped by the heroism and endurance of the Vietnamese people, but they took heart at the, at the resistance that was going on in the U.S. to the war. In, in a number of cases, the aftermath of war is revolution or upheaval and uh, change. There have been a lot of anti-colonial movements in Africa and Asia and Latin America that, that have led to at least nominal independence and some, some modicum of independence. <clears throat> the anti-slavery movement was an anti-imperialist movement. You can go on like that, but, but uh, everything very imperfectly. I, w I don't know if you could use the word success because you still have about 25 million people today in indentured slavery of one kind or another. Well, I very much appreciated your talk here tonight. And I agree with the stress that you laid on the fact that the imperialist policies are inimical to the vast majority of people in the United States. But the question I would, and, and that the support that it, those policies get is really a matter of false consciousness. But the question I would like to pose is, in you know, some of the classic writings about imperialism, there is this concept that a certain segment of the population is bought off, you know, labor aristocracy and all that. To what extent do you think that is still at work? To what extent is there still some material support for imperial policies? I think there's been class differentiation in the African-American community, for example. Well, I guess it would... The most that might be might be in the military industries where big military budgets suit the career and job aspirations and salary aspirations of people who work there. They, those people might... I don't know. Is there, there must be some voting studies that show whether or not workers who work for Boeing and uh, General Motors and all those other military industrial things, whether or not they are more hawkish than others. The people who benefited, the ones I, I talked about, which is the investing class and owning class, and, and there you're talking about a fraction of 1%. They benefit in a lot of ways. Whenever you can suppress people abroad, you also suppress your own working class. If I can turn to you and say, you're getting $15 an hour, plus benefits, plus this, plus that, I can take your job and bring it to Indonesia where I could pay 15 cents an hour, and that's what Nike has done. Nike has closed every one of their factories in America, and they brought them over there. So that imperialism also victimizes the working people of, of your own country because we can't... The historical gains that we have won to get our salaries up to a decent level are now being undermined by exporting those jobs to other countries or by bringing the population, the desperate impoverished populations from those countries here and forcing them to work and they're illegal and they can't even unionize, they can't complain, they have grievances. They know if they complain they'll be deported tomorrow morning. And So imperialism does, uh, I think it benefits really a very small portion of the population. 
I really think it's mostly false consciousness when people support the wars. It's not because they've got some vested interest. They're getting treated so well materially. I, I don't think that's, that's true. Okay, thank you very much. You were just listening to Michael Parenti on imperialism. This classic from the AR archives was recorded in 2005. Michael Parenti is a leading independent political analyst, scholar, and author. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as David Corton, Arundhati Roy, Noam Chomsky, Katrina Vandenhuvel, and Chris Hedges. And we have a series of programs with Michael Parenti. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Michael Parenti on Imperialism, and for Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations, call us at one 800 triple four one nine seven seven that's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven or you can order online on our website alternative radio.org that's alternative radio.org printed transcripts pdfs and mp3s of this program are free of charge just call us at one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. CJSW 90.9 FM